You can open up to Ecclesiastes, everybody. The book of Ecclesiastes. Pastor Rob spent a few weeks walking us through some portions of this book, and I'm going to highlight a theme in the book of Ecclesiastes this morning, which is the theme of work. And so the message title is Unlocking the Mystery of Work. And by work, I mean literal work, like toil, blood, sweat, tears, manual labor. Of course, there's mental work as well. All different types, types of work that we engage in in this world. And we're going to see that there's something mysterious about work. And God, in the gospel, solves the mystery of work. And we're going to be encouraged by it. But for starters, let's just talk about the fact that work is hard. Work is painful. Fill in the blank for me. Everybody's working for the weekend. Everybody's working for the weekend, right? Just got to get through it. Just a part of life. Muscle my way through it. But I'm really looking forward to the weekend. We have expressions like, I got a bad case of the, what? Mondays. Or TGIF. Thank God it's Friday. Even the way we think about days of the week are dictated by our feelings about work. Monday has a feel. Right? Terrible. Friday has a feel, all right, now we're getting somewhere, it's party time, right? We just want to get through work, or we want to avoid work. Work is part of life. And I don't know if you've ever contemplated work on a philosophical level or thought deeply about it, but we're going to do that this morning, because Solomon, known as the wisest man who's ever lived in this world, Aside, of course, from the Lord Jesus, the wisest man to ever live, he thought deeply about work, and he has some things to say about it that are going to help us. But we'll see as we move through, there's mystery to this. There's some mystery here. So let's talk first about the vanity of work. So I'm in Ecclesiastes chapter 1, right, right out of the gate here. He exclaims, vanity of vanities in verse 2, All is vanity. And the very next verse, verse 3, What advantage does a man have in all his work, which he does under the sun? Right away, he's thinking about work. And he says, what what advantage is there? Of what benefit is it? Now, the term vanity, Pastor Rob has explained, it's this idea of emptiness or futility or something that's vaporous. You just can't quite get your hands on. Well, throughout Ecclesiastes, Solomon expresses this kind of frustration with the vanity of work. Look at verses 14 and 15 in chapter 1. We're going to survey through, kind of a jet tour through, so you're just going to be on your toes this morning, okay? Just come with me, and we're going to look at some things Solomon says about it. First of all, he says uh, some things in life just can't be fixed. Some gains or some losses in life just can't be recovered. And so look at verses 14 and 15. He says, I have seen all the works which have been done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and striving after wind. What is crooked cannot be straightened, and what is lacking cannot be counted. Let me ask you, you ever had a, a dent in your car and try to like get a hammer behind it maybe and, and pound it out, or a suction cup and try to like pull it out? You ever done that and been frustrated by the fact you just can't get it back to normal? 
or maybe a a warped piece of wood or metal or something, or a a wobbly piece of furniture in your house, and you you just can't get it perfect, can you? There's just certain things that can't be fixed. And humanly, that can be irritating, can't it? And he says there's certain losses in life that can't be gained, can never recover from certain losses. There's something vain about it all. Notice next in chapter 2. Go to chapter 2, verses 4 through 7. Here he talks about how even the best of accomplishments don't satisfy. Solomon says, I enlarged my works. I built houses for myself. I planted vineyards for myself. I made gardens and parks for myself. And I planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made ponds of water for myself from which to irrigate a forest of growing trees. I, I bought male and female slaves and I had homeborn slaves. Also, I possessed flocks and herds larger than all who preceded me in Jerusalem. Solomon says, look, I, I had everything. And not only did I have everything, but I had the satisfaction of having made it all. I made it. It's self-made man. This is all my doings here. As he looked around his palace and all that he had, the work of his hands, and he says, wait, but there's something still empty about it. It's not satisfying. And he even says, I had, this is amazing, he says, I had Male and female slaves, home-born slaves. He had countless slaves and servants and workers who just did whatever he wanted them to do. They were at his beck and call. I turned to my, my daughter. I think it was last week that Pastor Rob was talking about this section of Ecclesiastes. And he was describing these slaves. And I said to, to one of our daughters, man, can you imagine if we had a slave at our house who was hired to just pick up all of Rocky's dog hairs? We have a German shepherd who they like to refer to as German shedders because they shed a lot and we try to keep our house neat, right, Jill? Jill works hard at that, but you look, you're never going to get them all. You'll never get them all. You could have a whole host of servants and there will still be dog hair in your house. You still can't get it completely done, like perfect, even if you have a Roomba. There's spots in the corner. It just goes against the corner. It just can't get certain things, right? It's just incomplete. Jump down to verses 17 through 20. He says the, the work will be left to another. This is something else he identified about work that we can relate to. He says, uh, verse 17, So I hated life, for the work which had been done of the sun was grievous to me, because everything is futility and striving after wind. Thus I hated all the fruit of my labor for which I had labored under the sun, for I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be a wise man or a fool, yet he will have control over all the fruit of my labor for which I have labored by acting wisely under the sun. This too is vanity. Therefore I completely despaired of all the fruit of my labor for which I had labored under the sun. I mean, you get what he's saying here? Hey, I can work really hard, accomplish great things, but someday I'm going to die. And when I do, all of this is left to someone else. And he, he may be a wise man who takes care of my things and runs with the baton in a way that's successful and worthy. Or he may be a fool and he may ruin it. He may destroy everything I've made. And he says, and I, I don't have control over it. I, I, this, is, this is bothersome to him. And you can think about how that's the way of the world. Some of you in here are retired and you had to at some point leave, leave that work behind, leave your office, and someone else came up, next man up, right? Someone else came up to fill that spot and you wondered about, or maybe you didn't care, maybe you didn't care at all, hey, good riddance, whatever, <laughs> who cares, right? Or maybe you wondered, how's he going to do? Is he going to do a good job? 
Is he going to carry on my legacy? Or is he, is he going to be a fool who just throws it all away? And there's no, we don't have control over such things. And so Solomon is frustrated and he's grappling with some of these empty or futile aspects of work. Next, I want you to notice with me in verse 22 and 23 here in, in chapter 2, he talks about the exha- exhaustion of work, and yet sometimes it causes sleeplessness. Look at what he says in verse 22 and 23. For what does a man get in all his labor and all his striving with which he labors under the sun? Because all his days, his task is painful and grievous. Yet even at night, his mind does not rest. This too is vanity. You can work really hard. You can exhaust yourself physically. And yet, your mind just can't rest. You ever had an experience like that? You go to bed at night and you're worried about something. You're dreading something that's coming the next day. Maybe it's a big meeting or a big deadline. Or if, if some of you young people in here, you have a test at school. And, and so you're tossing and turning because you're a nervous wreck about this responsibility you have waiting for you in the morning. Even though you're exhausted from the prior day's work, you can't seem to rest. You can't seem to sleep. And he says that too is part of this futility, this this just rat race of life. We all know what that feels like. Turn to chapter 4. He talks here about uh, chapter 4, verse 4. He talks about the competitive nature of work. I have seen that every labor and every skill which is done is the result of rivalry between a man and his neighbor. This too is vanity and striving after the wind. There's always someone gunning for your job. There's always someone smarter or faster or stronger coming for your spot, right? It's the way it goes in this world. This endless competition. I live in Coventry, or as you guys say, Coventry. Live in Coventry, and in Coventry, you go down Route 3, and there's a McDonald's on your left as you're going this direction. And guess what's right across the street on the right? Burger King. Some of you have been there. Burger King, right across the street. Competition. And on Route 2, there's Chick-fil-A, who's just annihilating all of them, right? Competition. It's what, it's what makes the engine of our economy go in a very real sense. And it's necessary. And it's even valuable. And yet, Solomon's saying there's something frustrating about it because it's just constant conflict. To do my work, I, I, I can't just do my work. I've got to fight with another guy while I do my work. I mean, think about that. Something irritating about it, Solomon says. Something that's troublesome about it. Look what he says next. Uh, you, can't, you can't take the fruit of your labor with you either. Uh, look at verse 15 of chapter 5. As he, had come naked, or as he had come naked from his mother's womb, so will he return as he came. He will take nothing from the fruit of his labor that he can carry in his hand. No matter what you accomplish, no matter how much money you make or how many material things you have, you can't take them with you. As they say, you never see a hearse pulling a U-Haul, do you? It's not coming with us. He says, oh, this is fascinating. Look at chapter 6, verse 7. All a man's labor is for his mouth, and yet the appetite is not satisfied. I work so that I can buy food, so that I can work, so that I can buy more food, so that I can do more work. Or maybe you can think of it this way. I work to make money, to buy a car, which gets me to work. To make money, to pay for the car, which got me to work. I mean, think about it. Is everyone depressed? You guys depressed already? It's a little depressing, right? I know, it's a little morbid. But these are 
inescapable reality Solomon wrote about thousands of years ago and remained true, right? Yep. Okay, this is the last negative one (laughs) because I know you can't handle any more. Look at chapter 10, verses 8 and 9. He who digs a pit may fall into it, and a serpent may bite him who breaks through a wall. He who quarries stones may be hurt by them, and he who splits logs may be endangered by them. So you work to survive, but you risk your survival in order to work. I mean, Solomon is just mind-bending stuff. Some of you have been hurt at work, on the job. If you haven't been, you know that you risk getting injured working, even working a desk job. One of my worst back injuries was just from leaning over a desk the wrong way. Human fragility, right? You work to survive, and yet you risk your survival by working. Interesting. So work is hard and painful, in some ways pointless and futile, and Solomon was very aware of that. And on some deep level, you too, if you've given any thought to it, you too are aware of it. I'll never forget years ago talking with a man that I respected highly. He was an accomplished cardiologist, and he became a friend of, of Jill and myself. And I was talking about his profession and, and the importance of the work that he was doing to help people survive these severe, life-threatening heart conditions that people have that he was treating. And he was talking about it and was very impressed with his knowledge and his experience, his accomplishments. And I remember driving home and thinking about how impressive of a person he is. And I thought, wow, isn't it interesting? And I mean this in, in a respectful way, but isn't it interesting that even a job like that, which you could say is one of the most valuable jobs a person can have, one of the most important jobs a person can have, and yet he's destined to fail. Every one of those patients will die. Every heart he works on will give out at some point. And do you know it's not any different for any other type of profession? No matter what we do in this world, it's all fleeting, it's vaporous, you can't hold on to it, and it's destined to, in some way to fail. And God, through Solomon, is saying, hey, think about that. Reckon with that. Thankfully, that's not the end of the story. As I said, there, there's mystery here, because work is not only vain, but Solomon says throughout that work is also very, very valuable. Very valuable. Think for a moment about what what it is you do. And most of you, even if you're retired, what it is your profession was or what you do currently. Everyone's active. We're doing things. We work in all different ways, tending to things at our homes and tending to things with other family members. And if we have a job, tending to our job, right? So so what is it type of work you do? Is people in here probably in education and people who are in law enforcement in some way or another, people who are in technology, uh, People who are just stay-at-home moms who work tirelessly at home. I mean, whatever kind of work you do, I want you to hear this. Solomon's saying it is, it is valuable. It's very valuable. It's very meaningful in reality. And, and how it is that it's meaningful, we're going to talk about toward the end. But for right now, just notice what he says about its value. Look with me and, and interspersed throughout. I know I'm kind of touching on different themes in Ecclesiastes. But if you back up again to chapter 2... Look what he says about work in chapter 2. So we're turning a corner here, okay, everybody? Chapter 2, he says, work is a gift. Look at verse 24 and 25. And he uses this expression over and over where he says, there's nothing better 
Verse 24, there is nothing better for a man than to eat and drink and tell himself that his labor is good. This also I have seen that it's from the hand of God. For who can eat and who can have enjoyment without him? So see, he says nothing better than to eat and drink and enjoy the fruits of one's labor. Chapter 3, verses 12 and 13, I know that there is nothing better for them than to rejoice and do good in one's lifetime. Moreover, that every man who eats and drinks sees good. In all his labor, it is the gift of God. There's something really enjoyable about it. The rain has come back somewhat, and so our grass is growing again at home. And one of my favorite jobs is cutting the grass. I really like, now that I have a riding mower too, I love cutting the grass, okay? And, and my wife sent me a, a little meme the other day. It's a little sort of video version. And it's this guy who has finished cutting his grass. And he's sitting and he's in all different places in his house looking out the windows at his grass from different angles. Just checking out the lines and everything. And that was me the other day after I cut our lawn. There's something satisfying about that job well done. And that's good. And Solomon says it's good. Enjoy it. Enjoy the fruit of your labor. I'm a simple guy, everybody. That's all it takes for me. Just, you know... Grass well mowed. But think of whatever your version is. It's a good gift of the God who made everything, who made this world and all of its variety and all of its colors and flavors and sounds and this wonderful world. He says, work and enjoy the fruit of your labor. Chapter 3, verse 22. Here comes a little bit of relief because he says in verse 22 of chapter 3, I've seen that nothing is better and that a man should be happy in his activities, for that is his lot. For who will bring him to see what will occur after him? This is him talking himself out of the depression he was in, considering the next guy up to take his position. Now he says, hey, you know what? I'm going to be gone, so who cares? Don't worry about it. Just live in the moment, he says. And there's wisdom there. The highest level psychologists and psychiatrists would say, and they do say, I've read their research, they say, hey, people who are better at living in the moment tend to be happier. Well, Solomon was onto that a long time ago. Just live in the moment. Something to enjoy, enjoy it. Chapter 4, verse 9, he talks about teamwork being a blessing. I'm going to just kind of list a few here. Uh, Chapter 5, verse 12, he talks about how sleep is, is pleasant. Sometimes there's no sleep, there's sleeplessness. Other times there's... Great sleep because of work well done and the body getting good rest when it's been exerted physically. And one last one we'll look at. There are a few others, but one last one is chapter 9, verse 9. But these are good truths we're seeing in these themes of work and Solomon's findings. Verse 9, enjoy life with the woman whom you love all the days of your fleeting life, which God has given you. Under the sun, for this is your reward in life and in your toil in which you have labored under the sun. So he says, look, enjoy it. Enjoy life. If you have the benefit of of having a spouse, then enjoy your best friend. Live, toil, work, and rest. Relax, enjoy the fruits of your labor together. That's a great blessing. It's a great gift from the hand of God. Every good gift we're told the New Testament comes from the hand of God. It's a good gift. It's meaningful in that sense. And yet, there is still the mystery because we started this message talking about the vanity of it all. So it's like, which is it? Is it valuable or is it vain? Well, that's part of the mystery. And Solomon too, as he was 
speaking forth these different types of ideas and these different truths about it being vain, about it being valuable. I mean, he was aware of the apparent contradiction there. He was aware of it. And he not only wrestled with that in terms of the horizontal and everything we've talked about so so far that we can easily identify with, but he was also aware of it on on the level of the transcendent. He was aware of it not only in this mundane of the day-to-day, but he was also thinking of it in terms of the transcendent, the spiritual. And he's like, wait a minute, what is... I mean, what's the deal? What is going on with all this? He, he thought deeply about it. I want to show you how he contemplated not only the vanity of the work of mankind and the value of the work of mankind, but he also contemplated the mystery of God's work. And so let's talk a little bit about God's work. Look at chapter 3, verse 11. After he gives that section that you're probably familiar with when he says a time to give birth, a time to die, a time to plant, a time to uproot what's planted. And he goes on and on through all those different ups and downs of life. And then he comes to verse 11 and he says, God has made everything appropriate in its time. He has also set eternity in their heart, meaning all of our human hearts. He's set eternity in our hearts, yet in such a way that man will not find out the work which God has done from beginning even to the end. This is what he's saying, everybody. Think carefully about this. He says, look, God's determined everything, the end from the beginning. God's the one in control of the time and the seasons of life and all the ups and downs. He's in control of all that. And he's done this in such a way that man has something he's groping for and reaching for, but he just can't quite get. And there's this idea that God's up to something and we can't fully grasp it, Solomon says. We can't fully understand it. Now, here's what's amazing. Because of what God has revealed, we're going to actually see that there's lots of things that we can understand with even greater clarity than Solomon had. But for right now, just notice there's some mystery here. What is is God up to in all of this work? Chapter 7, verse 13. This is uh, awesome and frustrating. Look at this. In light of what we talked about earlier... Chapter 7, verse 13. Consider the work of God, for who is able to straighten what he has bent? Remember that verse we talked about earlier? What's crooked cannot be straightened. The dent in your car, the warped wood on your deck, the wobbly piece of furniture, whatever it is that you just can't seem to get right. You know what he says here? Yeah, it's kind of God's fault. God's determined that things are going to be this way. Like What? This fallen, fragile world filled with flaws. And that's something, God's up to something. He's doing something. And part of what he's doing is he's determining things are going to be bent. I mean, I'm OCD. Certain things just bother me. A dent in my car just bothers me. But it's just, it's going to be that way. Hmm. Chapter 8, verse 17. Solomon says, I saw every work of God and I concluded that man cannot discover the work which has been done under the sun. Even though man should seek laboriously, he will not discover. And though the wise man should say, I know, he cannot discover. You know what Solomon's admitting here? Because remember, he was the wisest man around. He says, even for all my effort and for all my work to try to, my work of trying to make sense of this, I still can't quite get satisfying answers. And there's times when I say, I know, but I don't really know. (laughs) That sounds like humans, right? Talking confidently as if we know things and we don't really know, but, you know, just be real confident. People will think you know, even though you don't know. Hmm. It's fascinating 
how Solomon's writings in the book of Ecclesiastes, one, we can all relate to them, written so long ago, and yet, like, oh yeah, that, that resonates. Yeah, that's the world I live in. Same world, hasn't changed. Lots of things change, a lot of technology, lots of different changes, but some things don't change. It's the world we live in. Work is like this. It's valuable, but it's vain. It's rewarding, but it's taxing. It has some lasting qualities and some very temporal qualities. In the, ah, just the questions raised by the book of Ecclesiastes are answered in Jesus. Ecclesiastes talks about emptiness, and the New Testament, as it describes Christ, talks about fullness. Ecclesiastes talks about dissatisfaction, and the New Testament talks about satisfaction. Ecclesiastes mentions meaninglessness of things, and, and the New Testament helps us understand the meaning. Ecclesiastes talks about mortality. That's what we're going to talk about next week, is mortality. And in the New Testament, we see clearly this hopefulness of immortality. Ecclesiastes talks about temporality, and the New Testament talks about eternality. And that's why Pastor Rob and I just talked about how, how we want to transition into the Gospel of John. And we said, wow, Ecclesiastes would be a great place to springboard from it. It really prepares us for the Gospel of John and the coming of Jesus. But we're going to get a little preview. And this is the last thing that we'll do together biblically this morning is look at John 5. So turn to John 5. And let me just remind you, I've been grappling with this idea of our work in this world, this material, physical world. And here we have... In the Gospel of John, the record of the coming of God into his physical world. And this concept of work was one Jesus knew very well, both from engaging in it and understanding all of the meaning behind it, and in the sense that he was up to the most important work. Remember we admitted earlier, every human endeavor is destined to fail in a very real sense. Everything is temporal. Everything is fleeting. Be it a high-rise building, some point in the future it'll be gone. Be it a physician who's tending to patients, some, at some point they will die. I mean, everything is coming to that end. And yet we have this other kind of work. And so look what Jesus says in John chapter 5, starting in verse 17. Jesus answered them, My Father is working until now, and I myself am working. For this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because he not only was breaking the Sabbath, but also calling God his Father, making himself equal with God. Therefore, Jesus answered and was saying to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself unless it's something he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, these things the Son also does in like manner. For the Father loves the Son and shows Him all things that He Himself is doing. And the Father will show Him greater works than these so that you will marvel. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son also gives life to whom He wishes. Pause there. You see what He's saying? In this empty, futile mortal world Jesus has a fullness a meaning an eternality he has life to offer people and there's the level of what the activity we're engaged in 
And it has its vanity and it has its value. But then there's this work of the God who made it all, who's over it all, who's above the sun, who's not only involved above the sun, but is also actively involved in everything that happens under the sun. And here's what he's up to. He is working to redeem and restore all things. He's working to redeem and to restore all things for an eternity that is flawless. It's fascinating. You go back to the book of Genesis. Did you know that work, that the activity of Adam and Eve precedes the fall and the curse? Do you know, we we tend to think, as I started the message this morning, we tend to think of work in terms of negative, right? Like it feels, even the word work itself feels negative. But did you know, in the beginning of the Bible, God says work is good. It's very good. And yet, because of sin and rebellion against our Creator, now it's cursed. And so now there's, there's a level of effort and taxation and temporality and excruciating suffering in, in all the toil and the back-breaking work. That, all that stuff is cursed stuff, even though work itself is good. There's all this cursed stuff that goes along with it. And we live with the mystery of the vanity of it, but the value of it. And now he's saying, look, God is at work in such a way that he is doing the most important job that could ever be done in this world. He's going to restore it all. There is eternal life waiting for all of us. When these bodies finally give up our last breath, it is not meaningless. It is meaningful. Because there's a master worker. And that's God. And everything of value in this world, eternal life and everything that goes along with it. And you might, you might if you're thinking carefully, you might go, well, what does that even mean? Okay, I'm going to be raised from the dead someday. And that's incredibly encouraging. That's, there's that. And there's this idea of spiritual life. So eternal life is, Jesus says in John 17, this is eternal life. That they, your people, may know you, the only true God. He was praying to his Father. He says, this is eternal life. That they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus whom you've sent. This is what life is. It's relationship with our Creator. And it's all the love and the joy and the peace that comes from Him. And He says you will get tastes of that here and now, but in eternity you'll get only that forever. In a new heaven and a new earth, a physical created world in which we will still be active without all of the aches and pains and groans of the curse. Is that exciting? It's pretty exciting. The greatest work has been done by Christ when he says on the cross, it is finished. Everything necessary for my creatures to be reconciled to me is done. I've brought my people back to fellowship with me and made alive spiritually in that union with God and the promise of resurrection life physically that all things will be restored. Wow. Richly. Blessed, to put it mildly, right? Words fail. It's like words are not even sufficient to capture what is being said here. So we've zoomed out to this transcendent. This is the grand plan of the author and finisher of our faith, the Lord Jesus Christ, who made all things, who allowed us to fall into sin and to experience the curse, but who will redeem and restore all things. I mean, that is, that's it, everybody. That's the story. That's We've zoomed out, so let's do one last thing in in closing and just zoom back in. In light of all that, in light of all that, God says, go to work. Accept the vanity of it. 
that there's a futility to it. Yeah, and that's inescapable, and that's okay. It's part of life in a fallen world. So just accept it. Try not to take everything so seriously. Your identity is not based upon your job title or whatever. Like, relax. In that sense, spiritually rest and physically work. And that's good for you. So accept the vanity of it and appreciate the value of it. It's a good thing. It's very sad, and I won't say much about this, but if this is something you'd like to explore, I'd be happy to talk with you further. But it's very sad that uh, since COVID, you know, some necessary things happen in terms of shutting down the economy and kind of putting the brakes on things, and that had to happen, and it was, especially in the beginning, we didn't know what we were dealing with, and so that was important and necessary, but as months went on and we learned more about it, it was very sad for me as a counselor to, to go from a, a counseling ministry that had very few teenagers to a whole ton of teenagers coming to see me during that shutdown phase. And I remember one in particular who was a very hardworking kid, uh, ambitious, athlete, involved in school, all different capacities at school. But for the first time in his life, he was battling what would be called a clinical form of depression for the first time in his life. And I'm sitting there talking to him, and I'm trying to probe, and I said, well, what's, you know, what's, a, what's a day like? Well, he's like, let me tell you what a day used to be like. And so he's telling me what it was before shutdown, all his activities he was involved with, all he was doing, enjoying. And he said, and here's what it's like now. On a Monday, I roll out of bed, turn on my tablet for my school, bring it into my bed, didn't get up, didn't get to shower, didn't get dressed, just bring the tablet into the bed, and now watches his teacher for his online class. Rolls over in between classes, takes a little nap, turns it back on. The end of the day, okay, shuts that off two, three o'clock in the afternoon, whatever, shuts it off. It's got homework to do, all online in front of the computer. Literally never leaves his room, except to maybe get, like, some food or water or whatever. And day after day after day in his pajamas, doing basically, okay, work kind of on his computer, but not, you know, not engaging people, not, not active physically. And we have skyrocketing numbers in terms of anxiety and depression. And, and there's this view of work even put forth politically in some ways. It's like it's just all negative. It's all oppressive. And it's all working for the man. And it's all toxic. And, it's, and like in some ways they're not wrong. But I got news for you. If, you, if you. if you ditch it all, we're in big trouble. Because the world God created, the world we live in, is a world of work. And it's good. And he said it's good. And if you think you're sick now, wait till you just sit around and do nothing for a long time. Your body may even feel a little better but your mind is not going to. God is a good creator. He knows the world he made. He says, yeah, there's some ways in which work is vain. And it's frustrating, it's irritating, it's hard. And it's valuable, and it's meaningful. And there's nothing better than to enjoy the fruits of your labor and to enjoy your family and to work and to serve. And now this is it, okay? This is the culmination of it all. And I'll quote um, one of my favorite theologians, Martin Luther, who said, God doesn't need your good work, but your neighbor does. All the vertical has been covered by Christ. All the work necessary for there to be spiritual life, and love, and joy, and peace, and all those fruits of God's Spirit, all granted to you by grace. In Christ, you have all of that. 
That work is done by God alone. And now he says, okay, so in the natural world, accept these limitations, accept the vanity of it, and go work and serve. And be a teacher, and be a librarian, and be an electrician, or an accountant, or whatever it is. And know that that's valuable, and that's meaningful. And God's made you that way for good purposes. And he loves you, and he's redeemed you, and he's going to use you as you help other people. There's going to be fruitfulness of that. And in the end, just remember, yes, you, you're right, you're going to die someday. Yep, it's going to end. The rat race is going to be, be over. And when that day comes, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, and all things will be fully redeemed and restored. And aren't you looking forward to that? Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for, thank you for your love for us. Thank you for inspiring Solomon to write these things thousands of years ago, and yet fully relevant today. Truths we can identify with. We know everyone here this morning is here by your design and your providence, God, and we thank you. And I pray, whatever they're going through in their lives, in their ups and downs, in their work, that they would be encouraged, reminded of who you are as a good author and creator. You're reminded of your involvement in their lives, that you're their redeemer, that you've provided things of lasting value and true meaning and true satisfaction in Christ. Help them to believe the gospel. And then help us, God, to see the needs around us and to work in the natural, in the horizontal, to benefit others and to enjoy the fruits of our labors and to relax, to eat and drink and to do so to your glory because we say, wow, this tastes good to agree with you about the good world you've created. So we thank you, God, for your plan to redeem and restore all things. Help us to live in light of that great hope. Help us as we go today to go with hearts that have been uplifted by your truth. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.